Welcome to a special bonus episode of Variologies. You can consider this part two of episode five. This is the discussion that occurred after the end of that episode. John, Matthew, and PJ continued their discussion about the fall of the West and what could potentially cause it and what would the ramifications be if the West did fall. It's a very interesting discussion and worthy of being uploaded for you to listen. So I hope you enjoy it. Just in case this happens to be your first episode of the podcast, my name's Dan Calcano. I've been a student of the Bible for many years. I'm interested in theology, philosophy, and politics. And so those are topics that we cover here on Variologies, and it can differ from episode to episode, but we cover all kinds of subjects like that. So if you're interested in supporting this podcast, of course, listen to it, and but share it with others. And uh, you can even donate at my website, MessianicNiagara.com. And you can follow me on social media, in particular, at Dan Calcano on Twitter. And you can also email us at Variologies at gmail.com. And that's the goal that we need to be looking back for for society, is we should be striving for peace, brotherhood, companionship. And the basis yeah. of why like things like human rights or some of the great victories of the West are so essential was that they're the undergirding like realities that can bring us all together. Okay, well, and this, separate this is us. Because if we get into tribalism, that's where we lose. Like Collectively, yeah. we lose because we need to come together as a, really as a people. Because yeah. you and I, we're not powerful people. Yeah. We don't, we're not government operatives. We, how do we move forward on this? And I think that we have to find peace. We have to find these bridges so we don't descend into tribalism. So, okay, so I, I agree with your coming from. Okay, the, the challenge I have with your approach is saying that it's our rights and freedoms that are, is what's uniting us, is that it assumes that our rights and freedoms don't contradict each other. Okay, with the, with the gay marriage debate, okay, you know, what takes priority? Um, a community coming together and saying these are normative expectations for sex. Heterosexuality is normative and, sh- and should be um, not enforced through violence or through the government, but just um, through essentially um, guilt and shame, mm. right? So that's what societies do. They, they shame people for taboo. acting in, in taboo ways. Exactly. Yeah, right? So, roles, okay, so people have the right to. Um, and so the freedom of association, people can come together as a community and say to themselves, oh, this is appropriate, this is inappropriate. Okay, that's one right. But then you have the rights of a, a gay man who wants to enjoy the same benefits as heterosexual couples, right? So it seems like there, there's these conflicts of rights. And then the question becomes, okay, well, how do we structure these rights, right? What takes priority, right? And this is, I think, where the battle lines, at least culturally, really are. Mm-hmm. Like we don't know... The language of rights and freedoms, it doesn't give us any real answers. Is how do we organize which rights and freedoms are, are, should take priority, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Well, I think, um, you know, a lot of the language of light, rights and three, freedoms are adopted from Kant. And what Kant yeah. had to say was essentially that, well, my freedoms should go as far uh, as they can until they interfere with yours. Um, essentially saying, that, well, the rights of the free... Uh, Sorry, the uh, freedoms of the individual are king. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's you know, pretty much what we've been agreeing on here, that the freedoms of the individual are king. And well, maybe that kind of answers your question. Well, it doesn't answer the question, because you know, if you go to the debate about the, um, the cake, you know, if you know, bake, you know, that couple who 
Okay. I think the Christian couple sued because they bake they they refused to bake a cake for a gay couple. Correct. Yeah. Right. So this is a concrete example where they are saying, "I have the right to to worship and and free free association." Yeah. Yet I'm I'm getting sued because I'm apparently discriminating. Right. So this is a conflict of rights and freedoms, and there doesn't seem to be any real way to prioritize. We have to prioritize which rights and freedoms. But it yeah. doesn't seem there's no clear answer to how how we can prioritize them because it seems like it assumes that we by me acting freely, I'm never going to step on people's toes or me acting freely and responsibly. I'm never. But we inevitably, when push comes to shove, so we're always every time I enact my freedom, I'm I'm taking freedom away from somebody else, right? When push comes to shove, I, that seems to be the case. Yeah, yeah, I see right? what you're saying. Yeah, and I feel like um, I don't know. Uh, Obviously, I have to preface saying that, like, I do think that the example of the cake, I, I definitely uh, disagree with the, uh, the couple. Christian couple. Yeah. Um, I think they should just bake the cake. Uh, with that said, I'm not sure how that necessarily pans out in terms of, like, business yeah. ethics. Let's yeah. talk, let's always remind for the audience that we're talking about the fall of the West. So we're talking about economics, but we're also talking about morality, mm-hmm. right? So we're, we're, you know, what does it mean for the West to fall? Well, there's no single cause. It's not going to be simply a financial cause. It's not going to be simply a moral cause. It's going to be a variety, of, a multi-caused sort of fall, right? And that's why we're we're talking about this question about morality. Because, um, but anyway, I'm just I'm just yeah. Clarifying. So I want to go back to the fall of the West because I'd say most of the discussion has been about morality and, and to talk about like the baking, the cake, or like individual little tidbits yeah. to be representative of the whole. Let's go back to the whole. Because then what I would say is this. Um, Ray Dalio has a really great book out there. and I, I Ray who? Ray Dalio. He's a billionaire and he's an investor, but he's also like a really great historian. And he right. wrote a book called More or Less Changing World Times or Changing World History, something along right. those lines. And what he talks about and what Ray Dalio argues for is he says, uh, watch out. Because if history, as what he says, is a kind of a continual cycle of empires rising and falling. Right. So before what we would consider the American empire, which is the current world power in charge right now, there are certain markers that distinguish what is an empire. So before the American empire was the British empire, before the British empire was the Dutch empire, before the, you keep going and going back and forth. So there are many different facets. One, like science and technology, innovation, global reserve currency, um, trade ports and access to uh, defend the trade ports with military, social cohesion and uh, a general political philosophical or religious trajectory and all of these things kind of come together oh and the strength of the of the dollar of the Mm -hmm. currency itself and all of these kind of categories kind of symbolize who's in charge how they're in charge and why they're in charge because again when you look at the american empire or the british empire you can basically take over um, other powers take their resources bring that through a globally protected trade routes and then your military by having a strong military you can protect your gold you can protect those trade routes that money that's accumulated can go towards scientific research and education yeah. and innovation which makes you stronger and it kind of keeps rolling and rolling and rolling yeah so i want to know given what you said okay why do you think it's america that's going to fall so then i would say right now if you look at the american empire i'd say the reason why america in particular is like the empire or has been the last 40 50 60 years was not only were they the biggest benefactor post-world war ii and the collapse of the soviet empire in the cold war but they hold the reserve currency status of the world their u.s dollar mm-hmm. all other nations trade in u.s dollars they buy U.S. bonds. Like these are the indicators then of what makes and who's wearing the pants, so to speak. 
And that's what's happening, and what's happening historically right now in the world is so powerful and so interesting, is because there's a rival alliance that has been formed, and they are rising up BRICS. against the BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, Saudi Arabia. And not only are these alternative, like, not only are these other powers responsible for 40% of the world's population, but also they're looking to create a new currency that's going to be derivative or based on resources, primarily gold or gasoline, silver, cattle, like agriculture, and everything's going to be backed by something. And the argument that's being made right now is that the U.S. dollar is actually, the U.S. fiat currency is actually not based on anything. That's why you can see with quantitative easing, aka money printing, in the last two years, the American empire can print more money in the last two years than the entire last 100 years combined, and they can get away with it, so to speak, because they throw out that inflation around the world so that other countries who trade in U.S. dollars or the petrodollar, they're forced to accumulate that debt. But what's happening right now is that countries like China and Russia and Brazil, they're basically saying, Frig America, we're sick of it. We're sick of accumulating and being forced to use this debt-based currency. Yeah. I'll trade you gas, you give me gold, deal. You give me cattle, I give you oil, deal. So, yeah. And that's the way the world is going back to. So that's kind of a bit of my book. And like, I do understand where you're coming from. And I, 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 you know, I, I think if America fell, the fall would take the form of an, uh, a nuclear catastrophe. Like, I think okay. that's what the fall... I don't believe well, for a second that BRICS, that they're going to have this alliance, they're all going to be all... Um, good, you know, buddies with each other. I don't, I don't believe that because they're sure. all tyrannies, and you, you, they're always yes. fighting against. They're always yeah, going to fight yeah, against no each problem. other. I, yeah. I, have, I have more hope in something like NATO, where at least there's democratic values. I don't think I'm sure they would fight, but I don't think they're gonna, they're not as tyrannical as as, as BRICS, right? So yeah. I don't believe that BRICS because they're all tyrannies. Like, how are they going to get together? Like, why are they gonna say, "Oh, I, I'm going to surrender some of my freedom so that way we can all be equal." Well, yeah, Matt, Matt does have a good point, of course. Like, these uh, nations like Russia, for example, are very nationalistic. Maybe they won't cooperate, or maybe they'll cooperate uh, for a little bit for a common cause and then Against destroy the themselves America, afterwards. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting that you, you know, you're suggesting going back to this uh, trades-based economy, um, you know, which is what we used to have, I guess, before um, the Roman currency was developed. Um Something like that. Problems with that economy, though, probably won't last. It's inefficient. Um, How the heck are you going to trade horses for gold? Uh, Instead yeah. of fucking horses out there? Yes. You know, it's, you, I don't think it's going to be... I would actually dismiss your argument as sort of irrelevant because I don't really see it as a matter of... It's really a matter of value. So, for example, right now in the West, we consider it valuable to have a $100 bill. If I have like mm-hmm. I have a $10 bill, a Canadian dollar bill, we consider it valuable. Yeah. But in the context of, say, shelter or food or hunger, if I have the horse, so to speak, yeah. and you have the dollar, who's got the thing of value? So if China and yeah. Russia are going to trade with each other, which they are, or if Saudi Arabia is now trading China gold for gas, which yeah. they are, what is actually... There's nothing nefarious about it. It's more of just like a valueless trade or it's, yeah, yeah. I give you gold. It's, it's working yeah. for both sides. We have to be careful too because one of the problems that's emerged in the last several months at least from more of a right-wing commentary is that they've become actually sort of defensive of like a Putin. They go, oh yeah, I like when Putin says yes. in his latest speech that he's a real the man. Is the safe. Yeah. No, you don't want to live in Russia. You don't speak out against Russia. <laughs> yeah. If you do speak out against Russia, it's bye-bye for you. So yeah. let's be clear. I China, fun, yeah. I would say in my 
collective imagination of what I think is the worst form of tyrannical government to live under, it is China. We cannot allow ourselves to become like China or to become China. Yeah. I would say they epitomize what is the worst aspects of what it would be to live under a regime without human rights. Yeah, yeah I guess like, you know, apart from like China, there's probably worse ones like North Korea. But yeah, yeah, I mean, you are getting at a good point for the uh, like real issue with the trades-based economy, which is that sometimes people don't, like, basically the value isn't standardized. So if you have yeah. horses and I have gold, and, well, maybe you don't need the gold, but you need the horses. Now my gold is worthless. Mm. Um, and that was sort of the issue uh, with, you know, these trades, trades economies in the past and why we switched over to a, a, real, a real currency. Mm. Um, and then apart from that, um, you know, I think to kind of get at like why the U.S. Uh, is probably at risk for a fall. Um, I don't know if you guys ever read the newspaper. Um, I wish I could, you know, remember the uh, who wrote the article. Okay. Um, but I believe it was in the Globe and Mail. There are a lot of experts who uh, believe that America will not be a democracy um, as early as 2024. They might become a, right around the door, yeah. Yeah, which is very close. Bad <laughs> leaders, um, like you know, I mean, Trump is an obvious example, sure. but like even in the Democratic Party uh, in the U.S., I mean, if you think about like Joe Biden, I mean, you could essentially say that I mean, okay, Trump didn't achieve a lot of his goals, but neither did Biden. Um, Biden set out to do all kinds of things, and he got nowhere. He's like, Deadlocks. ah, Joe yeah. Manchin. I shouldn't have trusted that but guy. But to this, it seems to me that there's evidence of checks and balances when these governments can't do everything they want. It's evidence to me there's checks and balances. Well, Unless there's something that... Is it? Or is it evidence that, like, the government's just kind of lying to us about what they can do and then not doing it because that's not well, of course they're, they're lying. They can't freaking do I mean, everything because there's like, checks and balances. Guys like Joe Manchin, for example, well, why doesn't he want to uh, put in better child support, for example? Well, he's funded by companies that that goes against their interests. You know, I, I don't see that this, that, just because these governments are deadlocked, I, I, I see it as evidence of checks and balances. So a government can't just do whatever they want. And that's why Joe Manchin and, and I think Kristen Cinema. That's why they didn't jump on board with with Biden's plans. The, the what's that called? The uh, the filibuster debacle, okay. right? Um, because they believe that yeah, you know, you can't have one party have one party rule, mm-hmm. right? Then yeah. with all the power and leaving the other, like the, the power, they need to be in tension with each other for good or for ill. Yeah, sure, nobody's accomplishing anything, but we don't want the the government to accomplish a lot. Yeah, and we want to minimize what the government <laughs> exactly. can do. And this is why, again, what I think is I want to bring it back to now, again, philosophy, because philosophy is so important, metaphysics, epistemology, and how you understand reality. Because what I would say then, even notions like human rights, they are interpreted. Mm-hmm. Because the basic philosophy of human rights was that from a Judeo-Christian worldview, there are ultimately two realities, physical and spiritual. They both exist and they're both real. And human rights are ethereal. They're not tangible in the sense that I can weigh how much truth is or weigh how much this is. When we write down on pieces of paper uh, what human rights are, they're representative of what we would maybe say like a spiritual or even like a platonic reality that exists what we know is real. And then God is the source of those realities. So then I would say maybe as a society loses belief or faith in God, different things will very quickly swoop in to take that role of God. And one of the things that I also think then of a more, what is really a secular society, like 
there are sure many religious beliefs in a country like Canada, but most people are fairly secular in the way that they believe or think or live. What's happened in the West is that not only are we not grateful, we don't actually understand how reality works for many of the things that we take for granted every day. For example, things like farming or eggs, grain, money. So just for the audience, like real quick, I just got back from living out west. I spent some time living on, an, on a ranch of 3,000 acres in northern Manitoba, like way, way up there, three hours north of Winnipeg. No one around me for miles and miles and miles except wolves, elk. I was you living by yourself? I did, all by myself. And one of the things that I learned out there and I had to force myself to learn was without easy access to basic things like electricity, I did have some, but without a suit, like without an Uber apps and Uber Eats where I can just order sushi or I can just go to the grocery store. Like, how do you actually get these things? And one of the things I've learned, it's hard to get food. It's not easy to get food or to make food. It's, it's not easy to have warmth or energy. Yeah. It actually is a lot of work to get wood or the different things that I had just taken for granted so much in my life. And if I was to even ask you, Matt, if I would say, look at the younger generation below us. I'm 32. I worked as a hockey coach for a while. I work with a lot of young boys in particular, 13, 14, 15. What, are, what do we teach them? What are the skill sets? Can, can many of them make a fire? Can many of them hunt? Can they trap? Do they know how to farm? No. Even me, I learned some of those things recently. I still grew up in a city where all these things were just given to me. Yeah. So then if you ask and kind of boil it down then too, I would say the real two skills that a lot of young men in our society have nowadays, they can play video games for 10 hours a day. They are really good at statistically watching pornography. And beyond those things, like what are the real skill sets that we teach young boys and young men to have? And I would just say, if it ever came to a point in our society where food wasn't readily available at the grocery store, how would our society respond? Do we have the skill sets innate now to create food or to obtain food or yeah. those different things? Um, about 96% of the Canadian population lives within a with, lives within 100 uh, mile radius of the U.S. border, and of that 96%, about 84%, something like that, lives within these key areas of Canada, Toronto and the GTA area going up to St. Lawrence River to Montreal, Ottawa, a pocket in Vancouver and on the West Coast. Calgary, Edmonton are still relatively smaller cities. Winnipeg's a very small city and prairies are very like, when you look at a country like Canada, most of it's like a vast hinterland of nobody yeah. lives there. Those people though were the primary population areas. The skill sets that would be needed for something like there's no food at a grocery store, it's very minimal I think. We have to reconsider again, what is real in the West? What is real? Is food real? Is money real? Is gold real? Like, yeah. what's actually a value? And I, family, I, yeah. Because we live in such a hyper individual. Is family real? And I'd say, based on the statistics of depression and anxiety, a reality that most people in Canada face, we have to think about what is really the answer to solve these problems. Often it has to do with family and familyhood trauma and being like you're connected to a community and being connected to a greater purpose in life. And it used to be the traditional role of churches to fill those roles. Not only was your immediate family a source of meaning, but then contributing to your local church and your local community. We're all too small. We're not going to do much more than that. And that's within this greater grand narrative of having a real ultimate meaning in life, which is that since Jesus Christ died for my sins and rose again, I know that my life here on earth is very temporary. It's actually quite meaningless and small. It's not really a big deal. My true life is the eternal life to come. That's where I get my real hurrah. So in the context of people in a secular age in which people live and inhabit a society or a worldview where there is no ultimate purpose, people have to create purpose for themselves every single day all the time. And I find that mode of living and that mode of being very stressful. It's a lot of work. It's very hard. 
give into the meaninglessness of your life, so to speak, give your meaning over to Jesus, he'll give you a few things to do here on earth while you inhabit eternal life one day, and it's going to be real awesome. Yeah. That's my final pitch, so to speak, of yeah. looking to our audience. So I like uh, the quote, <laughs> everybody knows the price of everything, but the value of nothing. Maybe like, uh, you know, I think uh, secular criticism of Christianity in that view uh, would probably be um, it almost seems complacent to say that my time on the earth is, uh, well, you know, it's just going to pass and we're going to move on to something greater. But with some secularists and what I would like to advise secularists to do would be to take the most out of the time that you have because there's nothing after this. Mm -hmm. So what you do now really matters and should be focused on things that are real. Because I wouldn't think that the collapse is going to be permanent. I think, uh, you know, know, and it could. It might be not naive of me to think that uh, it will be a temporary thing. Um, What a lot of uh, economists are saying is that, you know, we're basically on the verge of a economic collapse that's going to be very bad mm-hmm. um possibly like on the scale of something like the great depression mm-hmm. i i think it's probably more likely to be something that is uh temporary i mean yep. bad but temporary um do you think that it is the best way to spend your time doing these things like uh, i mean you know like you mentioned it's hard to go and find wood and such do you think that is the best use of your time mm. Great question. I've thought about nothing less. Actually, nothing. I've thought of that the most, I would say, especially when I did spend a lot of time on the ranch by myself contemplating exactly that. And it wasn't just that uh, I wanted to test myself in a lot of ways, too. And it was in the height of the lockdown. So it wasn't like there was a whole lot going on in like a Toronto anyway. Doing an experience like that was really, really informative and character building for sure, which was definitely a plus. But then some people have said, and what I've thought too was, it's kind of like this. Let's imagine that we're in a 1930s pre-Nazi Germany where things are about to get really bad for everybody. Mm-hmm. Some of the thinking at that time with like a Dietrich Bonhoeffer or some of the escapists was that the problems are going to come and they're going to emerge. We can't stop it. It's inevitable that these problems are going to come. The best thing that we can do to help people is to get people out or to get people away. Because like the location where I was, for instance, it is the place to be in case of like some sort of a breakdown. It has the provisions, it has the resources, and primarily with population density, it's so far removed from the population density that in a context of like some sort of a breakdown here in Toronto or Hamilton, you're going to find yourself with 14 million competitors looking and scrounging, right? But that's like the most apocalyptic doomsday. Well, I I would eat crickets. (laughs) And I think that it's such a key and important question because... In the context of what I even say the last two years, you saw very quickly that people were very afraid. Like, not just of COVID, um, but fear was such a motivating factor behind, I think, a lot of the, the giving over of the rights and stuff. And I would think, and imagine that, too. that same thing, if that happens next or again soon, I think the degree of it will be even greater. And even their quotes, you know, they're interesting quotes. What's the difference between democracy and anarchy? Nine meals. Traditionally, when people go without nine meals, that's when they get normal everyday moral people become very different without and nine meals nine meals so like breakfast lunch dinner no food breakfast lunch dinner three days essentially without oh, food people yeah, go like okay. different evolutionary instincts start kicking yeah, I in see, I see. so i guess like even a lot of my decision to come back here was you know what if people are going to be living in panic or fear same thing what can i do to help because it's one thing to protect myself 
living out in the woods, I don't know, if, or is it better to go back in the community yeah. to help out? Yeah. So uh, if things get, if things do get more difficult, that much more they're going to be need for people who, uh, I don't know if I consider myself strong, I don't. I would say as a Christian, I consider God strong and I'm only strong insofar as I depend on him or, or reach out and have him help me out. Um, but uh, that's my view as a believer on this point, so. Just in case this happens to be your first episode of the podcast, my name's Dan Calcagno. I've been a student of the Bible for many years. I'm interested in theology, philosophy, and politics. And so those are topics that we cover here on Variologies, and it can differ from episode to episode, but we cover all kinds of subjects like that. So if you're interested in supporting this podcast, of course, listen to it, and but share it with others. And uh, you can even donate at my website, MessianicNiagara.com. And you can follow me on social media, in particular, at Dan Calcagno on Twitter. And you can also email us at Variologies at gmail.com. All right, but that's all for now. Thanks for listening. Take care.